Hello and welcome to Downtown Dialogues, Theatrical Outfit's brand new podcast that explores the deeper themes and questions of our work. I'm Matt Torney, Theatrical Outfit's Artistic Director, and I'm recording this today in our box office at our theatre right in the heart of downtown Atlanta. Today's episode features a panel discussion hosted by the wonderful Gail O'Neill that immediately followed a broadcast of a reading of Eureka Day by Jonathan Spector. Eureka Day is a fantastic new satire that has been creating waves all over the country, and this was Atlanta's premiere of the work. The play follows what happens at Eureka Day School in Berkeley after a mumps outbreak causes the state to demand mandatory vaccinations. It turns out the parents have some conflicting views on this, and in the play people try and sort out fact from fiction, truth from falsehood, and the play asks the question, how can you make policy when you can't agree on the science? Digging into this meaty and timely material, Gail assembled a fantastic panel that included playwright Jonathan Spector, the reading's director, January Lavoy, alongside a couple of special guests who were Dr. Saad Omer, the inaugural director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, and Hank Kimmel, an Atlanta-based mediator who is also a playwright himself. The discussion is fantastic and very timely, so I will let Gail take it from here. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight for Eureka Day and for this talkback session. I'm going to get right to inter uh, introducing our guests tonight so we can hear their viewpoints. First, I want to introduce the playwright, Jonathan Spector. Jonathan, Jonathan, where are you beaming in from? I'm in Oakland, California. Okay, so you wrote about the people and the place that you know best. <laughs> Making yes. good trouble, I have to say. Thank you for joining us tonight. So also much. participating in tonight's conversation will be the director, January Lavoy. Hello, January. Hi, can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. Very, very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. We also have Dr. Saad Omer who is the inaugural director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, as well as a vaccine specialist and brave enough to enter the fray on what is a third rail conversation these days. Good evening, Dr. Omer. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And finally, we have Hank Kimmel, who is an Atlanta-based attorney, mediator, and playwright. So we've covered all the bases here. Welcome, Hank. Thank you. All right, Jonathan, I want to start with you. I know the play was commissioned by the Aurora Theater in Berkeley. What was the impetus for the commission? What, were, what was their directive to you? Um, they, oh, there was, there was no directive. I had, we had started talking about a commission and I had um, pitched them an extremely vague idea of about doing something around vaccines in the Bay Area. Um, but didn't at that point didn't know it was going to be set in a school um, per se, but was just you know it had a few experiences of encountering people who um, people I knew and and people I thought were very intelligent and and very well educated who then I discovered you know didn't vaccinate their children or didn't believe in vaccines and and was sort of you know that experience is so disorienting and so I you know I was wanted to sort of dig deeper into it. January, from your perspective as a director, what is it about material on a page that jumps out and says, this will be great to animate with, with actors? And what was it about this play in particular? When Matt Horney sent me the script, I sat in an afternoon and read it and was laughing out loud and gasping out loud and read it in a single sitting. So whenever that is the experience that I have, I'm very eager to get my hands on the piece to start working on it and, you know, help lift it into the world because it's it's already there. You know, it's ready. It's like bursting mm -hmm. off the page. And I definitely felt that way with this play. Mm -hmm. Dr. Omar, before you migrated to the States from Pakistan, I understand you were part of a theater company or had can tell me about that first and then tell me what resonated with you about Eureka Day. So, so it's, it's really funny that there, you know, uh, 
that, that, that I'm doing this because there are a few confluences uh, of events. First of all, yeah, so before I migrated, we used to do um, usually subversive dark comedies. Um, and the country was coming out of a dictatorship. Uh, so things that would make people laugh, but also were a little dark. And for example, we did uh, an adaptation of Dario Fo's uh, An Accidental Death of an Anarchist in Urdu, uh, where um, every page had to be stamped by the censors. So we stripped it off all stage directions because we guessed that uh, if you if uh, you know someone had good reading comprehension, uh, there wouldn't be a government censor. Um, and so we had to sort of improvise. You know, so that that was kind of our, our experience. I haven't done theater in ages. Um, the other interesting, uh, you know, I don't know if you know, I used to live in Atlanta until a year ago. Yes. And, um, and I, it reminded me of, uh, you know, you know, when, when when the school's name was Eureka. I said, are they talking about Paideia? Uh Although Paideia is not like that; it's very science oriented. But the first scene of you know being, uh, you know, politically correct in a good way, or you know, that kind of stuff, or is that the Waldorf school uh, that I used to live uh, around the corner from in, in Decatur? So, so it it will resonate from your audiences. The third thing is is actually I work on vaccines, I work on vaccine trials, I work on vaccine safety, but a third of my work is actually on vaccine acceptance. Uh, and I have done uh, some of the work that informed some of the laws um, that uh, led to tightening of exemptions. We did the first study ever to say that actually the laws that were passed in the 60s and 70s um, with another Atlanta connection, I don't know if you know, Mrs. Carter was, Rosalind Carter was instrumental in passing these laws um, in, in the 60s and 70s, late 60s, early 70s, both as a first lady uh, of, uh, you know, uh, of Georgia and then the U.S. first lady, etc. But, but, but coming back to this, I actually evaluated uh, the California law as well and its impact. And I, we can go into... I hold a more nuanced position than absolutists in terms of that you know what kind of mandates should be there. So, but so it's a coincidence that that I find myself here uh, because I have thought about a lot of these issues. And Jonathan, like they, these conversations, really resonated with, with with someone like me who has not just looked at it. I I heard the the, the vaccine court case live. Uh, <laughs> There and one of the things that came to my mind: someone should make a play about this. Not <laughs> overall, but the court case it was so riveting, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So I'll pause here, uh, but it was a lot of fun to watch, uh, and, and you know, very interesting to watch the play. Well, you know, you bring up a very good point. If any of you at any point have a question for one another because of ideas that are cropping up or or you know alignment and synchronicity, feel free to jump in and. and Cross, cross conversate. Hey, as a mediator, how often do parties enter a negotiation with the idea that there's a small chance that I might be wrong? Because I find that without that humility, it's really hard to reach any kind of reconciliation. So is that is that an unusual thing for people to come in open or do you typically have two parties coming in saying, Hank is going to show this fool that I'm right. A mediation, by the way, Jonathan, I, I responded to this play first as a playwright, and I urge my colleagues from working title to attend it. I urge my colleagues who I work with as mediators to attend it, uh, but it really spoke to me most as a parent. So I do have a daughter who goes to Padilla, and she's listening right now. So really on so many different levels. But I'd say in a mediation, the focus is on what comes next. So I was uh, looking at this from a mediator's point of view, and to me, the negotiation, and, and I, I love Don, I love the way he reframed, but to me is what is the end game? This, to me as a mediator, my mind is start backwards, and his line is there are no villains. I love this about the play, because I think that's true in life and mediation and in, in, in a good play. And so I think what that is, um, is yeah, people come in and they have positions versus interests. I mean, th this was really just a textbook in terms of where people um, – come up on that. But I think it's really to get them to go to the future and to think specifically. And when a mediation settles, I used to say it's a mutually satisfying agreement between both parties. And realistically, now I say it's mutually dissatisfaction. You know, how much, how low are you willing to go and how high are you willing to, to jump up on it? So I thought it was was fascinating that way, that at the end of the day, I'm going, something has to give you. Because, and, and the other thing with in a mediation, when there are children involved, 
that's where the stakes are highest. Everything else comes down to money for most cases, except for a custody case. And here they're talking about children, but at the end of the day, it's really the survivability of the school that really, to me, um, ended up deciding which way they were going to go. I hope that answers your question. I just, I'm just so excited by this play. I just, uh, on, on so many different levels. So I, I hope I, I covered your, your answer somewhere in there. You did, and I feel, I feel exactly like you do. Jonathan, I have to channel Don for a second. When you opened by saying you were surprised by the fact that people who you consider intelligent did not believe in vaccinating their children. That sounded like you were villainizing parents who do not agree with your point of view. Tell me about your evolution in writing the play because in fact you write about characters who hold an opposing view with a great deal of compassion. Yeah, I mean, maybe to expand out on that, I mean, I think what's surprising is that, that you know, living in the Bay Area, a very sort of liberal bastion, it's easy to feel like everybody has your politics and everybody basically agrees with you. So it, I, I think it was not just that it was people who I thought were intelligent, but it was people who um, I share a lot of the same values with. And I, I, I think I, that we you know, basically agree on, on most of our ideas about how the world works. And so that's, it's the, the idea that there is this one thing where we seem to sort of live in different realities that was so surprising. I mean, I think that's why, you know, that's what made it an interesting idea for uh, something to explore for a play because, you know, making a, particularly because it was a commission for a theater in Berkeley, so it was going to be a Berkeley audience who were all going to be very liberal. So, it, like, it wouldn't be interesting, to my mind, to make a play about, like, you know, abortion or gun rights for that audience where the people on the other side of the issue are, you know, they're, they're going to dismiss them entirely out of the gate. Um, I think it's much more interesting if it's people who are, who are, um, who are like you in, in so many ways and who you, you know, you, you see eye to eye on, on, on most things, which makes it all the more confounding that there's this one thing that you are so far apart on. So tell me how you worked around that one thing that you were so far apart on and managed to write Suzanne with so much compassion, eventually. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I did, I did a lot of research, um, I, and I, I did a bunch of interviews um, with people, both with a, you know, a range of, uh, of sort of people I knew or, or friends of friends who, um, you know, had a who didn't vaccinate their kids or felt strongly about vaccines as well as sort of interviews with some, you know, public health people and, and just sort of a big range of people. So I definitely brought, um, brought big pieces of that into the play and, and, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and did a lot of reading and, and, you know, watched uh, documentaries and, and just, you know, you try and sort of consume as much as you can to, to bring in other people's point of view. And, you know, and, and there's something certainly like to, you know, today they just, announced they had settled with the, you know, Purdue, the, the makers of the, uh, you know, Oxycontin. And like, I, I feel like the argument Suzanne had about the reasons to be distrustful of the pharmaceutical industry in general, like they're really, I find them very compelling arguments in, in, in a lot of ways. So I feel like it's not, it's not hard to, um, to access. Right. And then to Hank's earlier point, once you bring children into the picture, then the problem just becomes intractable. There, there, there can be no higher stakes. January, I'm really interested in language and the way that language can be very passive aggressive. Um, when people start sentences with words like actually or sorry, or they end their sentences that are really declarative, quite hostile statements in a question, um, things go off the rail rather quickly. Tell me about your your response to the language that Jonathan chooses and how he has crafted it so carefully to, to really up the ante and create tension and release. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an incredibly technically specific play, which is one of the reasons why it can succeed on two days of rehearsal, uh, because the roadmap of the play is so finely drawn and the characters are so clear and specific, particularly in their use of language. I mean, we have this character of Mako who says very little, but says volumes with how little she says. And then she's the one who comes up with the whole human fallibility and hubris argument. You know, there's, there's also a sort of, you know, 
I don't necessarily love this term, but in the idea of microaggressions, which anyone who has ever experienced a microaggression might argue they don't feel anything like micro uh, when they're happening, um, that this idea that the the um, offense is contained largely in the language, in the choice of word, and in the delivery. Um, and I feel that these are this is a group of people who are very finely attuned to the way that they feel about their language mm -hmm. and their sort of ownership of language, but not necessarily in tune with how, with how their language is received. Right. Um, right. And it, it, it to me it bleeds into the larger conversation about this group of people, which is about community and community many times shared culture shared language shared values and yet we find when we scratch the surface that many people who consider themselves part of a community do not share values do not necessarily even share language do not share perspective um and so what does it mean what is holding this quote unquote community together and from the first conversation in this piece, what you find is like, they've largely agreed on how to talk. And that's almost the thing that is actually holding this community together is that we say things like, oh, we don't use that word. And it's like, oh, th yes, that's, that's right. Thank you for the reminder, that's who we are. Which is not, when you think about it, a very strong uh, binding <laughs> to hold itself together with. Right. Hank, how true did the language ring to you as you listen to this play? And as a mediator, again, and as an attorney, are there words you hear that crop up in conversations where you think, uh-oh, this is not going to end well? It, it sounded incredibly real to me. I was just, I, I had a chance to read the script in advance in preparation, but just seeing this Facebook screen and all this too, and the characters just sounded very authentic. And that is true in, in mediation and in a play. Folks don't speak in complete sentences. And, and to me, what was amazing about this at real life to mediation, it wasn't what was, that's why I do mediations by Zoom. And it's completely, it's more dissatisfying to me because you lose the nuance. You don't see the facial reactions. You can't really see the pauses on that. And so I think within this play, in some ways, the more, and I think January said that when the characters were inarticulate in some ways, to me, those are the moments of the greatest articulation. Yeah. is what was said between the lines and also in this it was like a mediation where you see uh, parties come in say for a divorce and they're saying i'm going to be on my best behavior i'm going to be on my best behavior and you just see that tension bubbling up and here there wasn't an outlet because of the, the language he set up themselves actually became an impediment to, to their ability to communicate till the very end when it exploded and to me that's when cases settle sometimes you just have to let the steam off so i thought the facebook page uh, uh, was just absolutely amazing. It followed the trajectory of the play, followed the trajectory of a mediation. So I, I just was so enamored with both elements. I just love the emojis, the well-timed emojis that would just blow everything up. You know, the big eyes or the, well, the language. Um, Dr. Omer, as somebody who has helped policymakers come up with policy, tell me how you balance the American right, let's say, to personal liberty and responsibility to community? How do you walk that line? So actually, I don't take um, the questions of liberty lightly. Having grown up, spent a lot of my childhood under a dictatorship, um, obviously, like, sort of, I have a sort of a center-left perspective on life. Uh, um, I think science has corrupted me to that worldview uh, to, to actually sort of value facts. And when you value facts, um, you know, you end up having a certain pro-science, pro, science, pro uh, you know, at least a center-left kind of a perspective. And I said that with some snark, obviously. But um, the questions of liberties are, are important for me. And the way I frame it is that it's my child's liberty to live uh, a disease-free life. It's my liberty to send uh, my kid um, to a school uh, where they don't have to be concerned about. And that was an odd subtext uh, that, that I really love. That that's the subtext a lot of parents use. Uh, when and, and it is a dynamic that most parents do vaccinate. And so that's the approach. But I do, when it comes to policy, I actually don't take the perspective that you... I, I support mandates, for example, but I uh, take a Goldilocks approach to mandates. If they are too cold, they don't work. 
But if they're too hot, and we showed from our work in California specifically uh, that when they went from the uh, sort of really loose uh, mandates to medium level mandates, they actually had a lot of people vaccinated. But when they went from that to eliminating all non-medical exemptions, um, it, what happened was then there was a near total replacement uh, in two years because a lot of people start sending their kids to, uh, you know, to other ch charter schools that were homeschool, charter school, uh, hybrid, uh, and started homeschooling. So we actually showed that, we see that in data, that if you don't take that Goldilocks approach, uh, you can have this replacement effect. So, so even from a pragmatic perspective, balancing them is not only that it's not, you know, contradictory, but also it's, it's, it's good policy as well. Mm -hmm. I have a question for all of you. So whoever wants to take it, just raise your hand or just go for it. So often in the play, when characters are afraid, they put on this mask of aggression and hostility. Why have human beings evolved to not show vulnerability when vulnerability is the quickest passage to understanding, to compassion, and to a willingness to lean in and to hear what the other person has to say. I couldn't hear Suzanne until she got real and until she got honest. And then she had me. But why is that our last resort as human beings? Maybe you should start with that one, Hank, because you see it all the time. Oh, gosh. I was trying to ask January on that one. So, uh, gosh. Either one of you. Yeah, no, I, I, to me, it, it's a measure of, of self-protection. I, mean, I, I just see it that way as well. And trust and, and really craving. The play is really the characters are craving for acknowledgement. So I think part of that is, and, and I do see that in, in, in business and, and in, in court, is when parties, the first steps towards successful negotiation is acknowledgement. And here the language said we're acknowledging you, but they weren't really acknowledged. And, and I think Don actually, I mean, the, it came a far way in this play, too, where at the end he really had to make a decision. But he was still, I thought he made it as compassionately as he was capable of. January, did you want to add? You're nodding. I mean, we, you know, we talked about this in the process and the reality for Suzanne's character from our perspective as this particular company is she only becomes vulnerable when she humiliates herself by assuming that Karina's family is not full pay. And she completely exposes herself as the kind of person who thinks that way. Even and as she says, that's not who I am. Right. And so the only way that she can crawl back out of the whole of the depth of that humiliation, that's what activates in her the, the like ability to be vulnerable. I mean, I'm, you know, Jonathan should probably weigh in because I'm like, this is what, but I, you know, for me, it's just born of need. Um, and, you know, it's in, in the way that we see Suzanne's character evolve through the play. I mean, she's a tactician. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it's actually the smartest tactic that she can grasp right. to get herself out of this, this horrible, humiliating place that she's dug herself into. So I'm not entirely sure that the vulnerability that we see is not still, in a sense, just a, a, a mechanical response to the situation she finds herself in. Jonathan, you created her. What's yeah, her I mean, I think it's you know, that... that um, what she's doing with that the choice to to share that story i think it's a place where different you know different productions different actors have have made different choices about exactly what the degree is of uh manipulation that's involved in in sort of the choice to share that story or how much it's just sort of you know feeling out of control that it's sort of she goes to and i think you know i i i think depending on the choice it's made it it you know, colors the character in a different way, but I, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I'm, I, you know, I, all of the different, I think that, you know, it, it, the play hopefully, you know, is flexible enough to sort of, to work, you know, with, with whatever choice, you know, that performer or that, you know, that production makes. Mm -hmm. I would, I would say it has. And I, I would just add to that, that, you know, it's not, the fact that she may still be using it as a tactic or a manipulation does not in any way take away from the the genuine 
pain and need. It, it is that sort of animal way that we have of responding to distress. So our, our animal brain and heart, you know, it just gropes for the best thing to do. So the vulnerability can still be real, but it can also be beneficial. I think we have to kind of hold both of those ideas to sort of honor the humanity of the character. Dr. Omer, I learned so much about the vaccination vaccination versus versus anti-vaccine um, controversy while trying to curate my guest list here tonight. And I could not be happier that all of you said yes. I had no idea it was such a hot topic, but friends told me that at the CDC, the, the few times that there are demonstrations that get really heated, they've all been around childhood vaccinations. And a couple of physicians said, good luck finding a physician who will come on and talk about this because there is just a no-win situation. So A, thank you for saying yes. And B, why did you consent to joining in this conversation? Well, so there are a couple of things. First, uh, look, I, I like theater. Um, I don't do theater, but I like theater. Um, and and uh, so that's one thing. The second thing was Atlanta. Like, so any any email from a place with, uh, that, that has sort of become a part of your identity uh, um, is, um, you know, Obviously, you, you open that email and, and read that email a little bit more carefully. The third thing is that if scientists and physicians and others do not communicate, that leaves uh, a void that is filled by half-baked stuff. Uh, on the other hand, you're right. I have a, actually a, a, a subfolder. I'm not one of those people who put my emails nicely in different subfolders, but the only subfolder I actually curate is uh, my quote-unquote fan mail and uh, that it can be very hateful uh, sometimes actually it's true fan mail it's uh, you know older pediatricians that uh, often write to me saying that you know these people haven't seen the diseases we have seen etc some of them are nice but you know we get pretty nasty emails um, including uh, you know threats of physical harm and if you have uh, you know if you have a slight accent and you have a slightly different heritage uh, there is a traditional zing to it because they find one thing that is different about you and they're built on that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so it's not just anti-vaccine. It's not just that you support this vicious conspiracy uh, by the pharma industry, that you are a bad person and, and, and one time, you know, that you'll be lynched like Osama bin Laden. You know, my first reaction was, you know, get your facts right. The guy wasn't lynched. Uh, but... <laughs> that becomes part of that and so when, when and it's a deliberate decision I, i'm not foolhardy etc you know for example when i testify um i don't you know there are certain precautions i take um uh, etc um in terms of uh, in front of legislature states or uh you know federal uh and, and all of that stuff but that's the cost of doing business if you don't do it uh, then, then there's this void that's filled by all sorts of fluff. When you say there are precautions you take, why are you wearing a bulletproof vest? Do you no, have no. security? There are others who do that, who have had to do that. Um, uh, uh, yes, so there is Dr. Paul Offit, uh, who used to, when he used to come to CDC open meetings, vaccine meetings, he used to have a, a guard with him. Uh, I think it was a, a, one of the federal agencies protecting him or, or, or the police or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not a private guard, um, as I understand. Um, others have had other precautions, but basically, uh, for example, if you, uh, you you where you enter the room from, etc., and how you behave, uh, who you arrive with, you have to sort of take precautions, and that's that's cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. Hank, have you found in your practice as a mediator and as an attorney and as a playwright that um, that we have become less tolerant that ad hominem attacks have become appropriate when we have, you know, fundamental disagreements over a philosophy or over anything. I, I do almost all, all my, in fact, all my mediations are through the court system. So for me, the reality check is if you can't figure it out, you go to the judge. And and I do, I mean, I, when I work in the courtrooms, I mean, I, I do see the judges still have authority, they're marshals there. So I, I don't really see that in my professional life obviously in personal and political life it's just all over the place when i i tried to watch the, the debate to me it was just um 
really one of the most depressing moments as someone who makes a living as a communicator. So I was, was just really disappointed um, with, with that. So I do see that more on the political level. And that's why I think that the play here is that whole Facebook exchange, again, um, was just phenomenal. It just, to me, it was just following that. There was so much to follow in that. I could watch that scene three or four times and just follow it different ways. So I do think that reflected it. And I, I and in mediation, too, is you have the option of, of separating people, and that's a tool, and then just acknowledging, look, I hear your passion. It means a lot to you, but what is the end game? So to me, going to court, there's an end game. Either you're going to figure it out on your own, or the judge is going to make as Abraham Lincoln says, the judge makes the last the last best guess. So we try to, to do that as well, too. But to me, that's why in the communication here, there wasn't the structure. I think in political discourse, there isn't the structure for communication, and it just gets bogged down. So. Jonathan, were those Facebook scenes, the social media scenes, fun to write, or were they painful to you to see how low we can go? I mean, it, it was it was difficult to write it was it was fun but it, it was uh, it was challenging it was technically very challenging to write um and i think that the the place that scene came out of is that i was spending so as i was doing so much research i would spend a lot of time you know on message boards sort of reading people arguing about vaccines and the conversation would get so vicious um and so awful and i was feeling like there was no way to sort of have a play about this topic without reflecting that, which is so much how the dis so much a part of how the discourse happens. Um, but I kind of didn't want to make any of the characters have to get that nasty with each other, so I was sort of trying to find a way to like bring bring and also wanting to sort of broaden the conversation since it was meant to be about the community as a whole um, beyond and and bring in the whole community the. Um, and then it was, it, you know, it, it's still, I think, a very technically challenging part of the play from a writing point of view, because, um, you know, if you're writing a scene, uh, as happens sometimes in the play, where, where there are sort of two conversations happening simultaneously, you can time that out. Um, but if you're trying to time out the comments, we read at a different pace than we speak. So figuring out what exactly when the comments should appear is, is, is tricky. And then all, in performance, typically during that play, that during that scene, um, there's a great deal of laughter uh, such that, you know, in, in some productions, you sort of can't hear much of the dialogue in the scene, um, which was not my intention, but is a sort of delightful accident. Um, but then trying to figure out how to make it work so that the lines that are important to hear are still heard um, is a sort of separate technical challenge. Yeah, as a viewer, I was trying to hear what the four people were saying as they were speaking over each other on the left side of the screen. And I'm trying to keep up with all the comments. And then I'm laughing. And so it, it really kept me on my toes as a viewer. Um, January, under the best of circumstances, a director has to keep many spinning plates in the air, not having them crash, all these moving parts. So now, Describe that process while in quarantine and having your actors in five different locations and you pulling all those pieces together. What was that like? Well, most importantly, I have to acknowledge the sixth person who is our stage manager, Courtney, who's actually running the show. So she's running the cues of the Facebook page and the comments and the sound and taking the actors' cameras in and out and helping people problem solve with internet and things. So it really does not happen at all without that person. Uh, so congrats to her and the entire extraordinary cast. Um, you know, it's, it's really similar and I have the great gift of having a lot of my students here tonight, my wonderful students from my Theater 120 class at Emory University. Hey, They're students. They're amazing, amazingly talented, wonderful human beings. Um, and, you know, I'm so used to doing this. I'm so used to doing theater on Zoom now because I've been doing it since March with my students. Um, and so I've made certain accommodations about as a director or a teacher, you have to just decide that anything that causes frustration or friction is not worth it. Okay. We'll get to that later. You know, it, we'll, we'll go back and learn that lesson when we are 
back together. So you really actually have an opportunity to sort of pare the process down to the essentials, mm -hmm. which in this case is what we can see and what we can hear. Sounds um, like a good metaphor for mediation. <laughs> Perhaps it is. Uh, yeah. but it, it is a way to bring people together when we all just sort of agree these are the terms, what we can see and what we can hear, and you know how to think through the emotional arc of things. Um, and it actually, I think, binds people together in a really nice way because we're so all so starved for connection in so many ways. Right, absolutely. All right, I'm gonna invite you all to ask one another questions if you have any, and I'm going to check the chat to see if any questions are streaming in from our audience. I promise, Courtney, I would do that. And audience, please, we wanna hear your comments. We want to see your questions. I don't see anything so far, but it could be my technology. Does anyone have any questions for Dr. Omar, any of you guys? I can actually see one of my students' yeah, I mean, questions I, I'm curious. Oh, yeah. for him. <laughs> okay, I see a bunch of questions. Go ahead and ask your students' question, or well, does somebody have a question for Dr. Omer? There is one specifically for him uh, okay. that I can see uh, that says, Dr. Omer, in your experience in public health, how will the arts such as theater, TV, music, et cetera, play into helping build confidence in a COVID-19 vaccine when and if one becomes available? That's a great question. It's uncertain. Uh, but I think it could help, uh, et cetera. For, for example, as someone who um, has been engaged with the some work around the pandemic, um, going back to Camus' uh, uh, The Plague, the book that he wrote ages ago about this time, town in Algeria where there's an outbreak, um, has, you know, I have gone back to that book uh, a couple of times. Uh, dude, I lost my copy. Um, and uh, in the move uh, from Atlanta. So I reordered um, the book uh, and, and I've gone back to it for, for a few times. So from a very selfish perspective, it helps to know, and, and you can see Dr. Fauci in that book, uh, mm -hmm. for example, uh, obviously no doctor, no character called Dr. Fauci, but there is um, you know, a character that resembles the guy who is ostracized for telling the truth, uh, the inconvenient uh, truth uh, and so on and so forth. So, so, so yes, art helps. Art helps a lot at a very personal level for those of us are, who are in the thick of it, um, and many others are in the thick of it. Um, it. But in terms of setting the narrative, I think it's if it's done right and if it's done subtly, it it it, it has to be helpful uh, because some of the a lot of the narrative from the the places where we would hope mainstream messaging would come is not coming. Uh, so you would think, um, irrespective of the political party, people would talk some level of sense from their podium in the Rose Garden, uh, and rather, instead of hosting a super spreader event. So, so my hope is that if it is done right, if it's done appropriately, it will help. Um, but I can't be certain. Mm -hmm. All right, Jonathan, I have a question for you from Beverly. How different is this production from your initial version for the piece? And secondly, how has Zoom affected your view on rewriting? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite different because it's on Zoom and it's not a production. <laughs> so we're not all in a theater together, you know, watching it. And of course, you know, the audience is, is, is a huge element to, to a play, certainly a play that, that is, in, you know, in part meant to be a comedy. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I don't know what the experience of watching it is for, for sort of everyone at home. My experience of watching it is, is quite different than my experience of watching it, you know, in, in a theater. Um, I don't, I don't have any plans to rewrite anything, uh, you know, for Zoom, um, or certainly not this play, uh, hopefully, I, I'm, you know, trying to remain optimistic that our time in this format is, is somewhat limited, and and at some point in the not too distant future, we will be able to um, to return. This is actually the second Zoom Zoom reading that I that I've had of it. Um, the first was was with a, a cast of actors who had done the play before, um, so that was a, a little bit of a different experience because they they were already so familiar with it. Mm -hmm. All right, I have a question from Amna. I have a question about tech. Did the actors time themselves to match the chat during the live webinar scene, or was the chat cue based on their lines? 
This is where Courtney's genius really comes in. I got a headache trying to keep up with them. Never mind her doing all of her sound effects and, and emojis and et cetera, et cetera. January, you want to take that question? Yeah, this is where we hit the hard wall of the limitations of Zoom. Um, because, you know, in the theater, in the live theater, we have a lot of different people running all of these different things. And a stage manager queuing, you know, a, a sound engineer and a lights person. And we don't have any of that. Courtney is a one woman band. Uh, and so we actually spent about, oh, I don't know, maybe four, three or four hours today on that one scene, just trying to figure out how it could make sense. Who can cue whom when we can't make eye contact? Right. We can't necessarily hear each other. There's no secondary body language of any kind to rely on. Uh, and so just the fact that it happened was a miracle and it was very exciting. And I stood up in my living room and applauded when the scene was over. Uh, but again, I will say, I'm not just saying that because Jonathan is here. It is the mark of a very sturdily well-written, technically proficient play that it can withstand a little bit of wiggle room here and there in this type of format and still sustain the tension and the humor and the sort of engine behind it that we were able to do because it was a lot of sort of like, okay, we're just gonna we're just gonna run at the wall and and and, and hope that it all turns out okay and uh, and it really worked beyond okay. All right, from Grace, a question for you, Dr. Omer. In your experience in public health, how will the art? Oh wait, January and after oh, yeah. question. All right, one from Marshall. At any time during production, did certain current events influence the contents of the play? Or perhaps did the actors find it easier to relate to slash get into the characters due to current events? I wish we could have the actors weigh in on that. Um, who wants to take that question? Jonathan or January? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say something I've been thinking about about you know with this play and 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 which I you know hopefully will have a life uh, after COVID, um, but it's going to be such a different play after COVID than it, than it was before. Like there, there's a way in which the play sort of become a period piece um, because it, it, you know, it so firmly exists in the, in the pre COVID world um, because it, it just the characters um, experience of, of viruses and vaccines, you know, I, I think exists in a, in a place of naivete that I, I think we all wish we still uh, had if we weren't going through this. So, uh, I, I think I, I, I'm very curious to see kind of how the play will land for people sort of on the other end, at, at the other end of this, when we hopefully are there. And I think it's so hard to know at this point what that's going to feel like um, just for, for all of us as people, let alone then how we're going to, how plays will resonate with us in that time. You know, Jonathan, I see it a little differently. I see this play as being a precursor to what we're in for once the COVID vaccine comes about. Dr. Omer, you're nodding your head. So what do you think? Is Jonathan's play going to be um, a time capsule that's no longer relevant in <laughs> eight, 12 months? Or is this headed? I wish that were the case, uh, you know, as a public health person. Uh, I think uh, it has more longevity than, than a sort of a period piece of yeah. uh, you know belonging to a recent past. I think we will. There's good thing and bad things about uh, vaccines. Vaccines will. Um, first of all, we're not going to have a vaccine. You know, I, I hope it's apparent to everyone before election. Uh, but we will have a vaccine program early next year, um, and with that will ramp up throughout the year. Initially slowly, then uh, uh, a, um, a big peak, uh, etc., or sort of big jump. In the because that's how production and supply works of new vaccines, um, and then my uh, so I've, I've I've been asked uh, a few times what what would be your what what would signal normalcy to you, and my answer has been being able to go to a jazz performance um, in the village or in Atlanta sort of uh, uh, you know at or or, or, or to, to Blind Willies for example. Um, you know, one of the sort of the musical performances there, uh, and to go to a play, um, because that would make that would signify that we can safely gather as a group um, in small, reasonably confined, hopefully better ventilated 
Uh, oh, so this <laughs> ventilation in, in, in all of those theaters, uh, places. But the other thing those vaccines will bring is uh, bring back will be these debates. They are not, unfortunately, going away. Um, and the nuance. And one of the things I'll say, Jonathan, uh, I, I really, really appreciate as someone who's spent most of my professional lives on vaccines. I really appreciate that you didn't make a caricature out of, uh, you know, Suzanne. Um, you know, there parents who have these guys, even without a backstory, um, it, it wasn't a, a sort of a, a one-dimensional character. Uh, and, and I often say the people on my side of the divide who are, uh, there's nothing worse than the arrogance of self-righteousness yes. um, that some of sort of my peers have. And if, if yelling at parents were a good idea, then, then teenagers would have been the best communicators around. <laughs> and so, um, so, so I really appreciate that. Uh, but, but, but the fact that it will not go away, I think it will resonate uh, with a lot of people. Um, uh, you know, it, it will be um, a play that, you know, folks will remember and relate to. Yes. All right. Uh, let's see. Hank, I'll ask you this question from Jenny. It's really to everyone. What do you all think would have happened at the end if Karina also shared Suzanne's perspective on immunization? I don't see that happening. But what do you think, Hank, would have happened if Karina shared Suzanne's perspective on immunization by the end of the play? I probably and if you're wrong, Jonathan, maybe she could. I don't know. I'd probably answer this more to play, right? I'd say, Jonathan, uh, maybe you might want to consider writing that wonderful last scene. I mean, to me, Karina was such a fantastic. I mean, to me, the, all the characters had an arc in the play and, and, and were different at the end versus the beginning. But to me, Karina ended up being the most fascinating um, character. So, so to me, in some ways, I would look at it as a, a more of a dramaturg or playwright. I said, oh, you know, it would, would, um, but I think also, too, I mean, I think the money, all the money, Eli is the one who subsidized the, the survivability of the school um, became really the, the linchpin of what, what ended up deciding this. So mm -hmm. I, I think to me, as a mediator and even in this place, to follow the money, I think that's that's where it end up and would end up. And then as a playwright, Hank, going back to what you just said, what is it about Karina that you found so compelling and captivating? She went from being, I mean, in, in the very first scene, she's sitting there. She's a um, really almost an accidental kind of hero. And then she's invited into this room at the school. And then at the end, she really uh, takes the agency of, of just the petition of, of trying to communicate. And she really is, is really, to me, does a role that, that Don is, is really charged to do is, is to, to rally these folks. And so at the end of the day, decision has to be made. I mean, that's the end game is, okay, what are the options? And I, I thought she, she pursued it with compassion, um, with information, but also acknowledging her own self-interest. I, I just, I just, and the actress who, who did the role here was, I thought was, but I mean, all the actors were, were phenomenal too, but I just, um, just could love the way that character evolved. Jonathan, what did you want to convey in the first scene between Suzanne and Karina? I thought, gee, why is everyone so tense? They're both parents. They have kids in the same school. They're sitting in a, you know, a, a, a safe space, let's say. So what is it that you wanted to, us to understand about these women from the get-go? Uh, you mean the first time they're alone together on stage? Or yes. Or the first group scene? Uh, the first time they're alone together on stage. They really have nothing to say to one another. And then we found out that they had, I guess Suzanne had hosted Karina at some kind of a school yeah. event, family event. And I, just was uh, I mean, I think, I think it, in some ways that scene, you know, is structured a little bit like a, you know, it's like a fractal version of the play at large that it, 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 it seems like a sort of moment of, of connection or begins that way or of welcoming. And then is, is, um, you know, it, it, that sense of safety is undermined a little bit, or sense of or sense of connection. Um, so, but but you you know, it's like you what you want to give them, you want to give them some kind of moment of of being together on this on the same page about something, so that so that they have somewhere to go in the play. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. January, where did you go in this play in terms of starting out with uh, a certain point of view and then maybe evolving or experiencing an art or being confirmed? I knew I was right all along about this. 
Um, I would say that what changed the most for me over time and exposure to the play was my opinion of Suzanne. Um, I grew to have a tremendous amount of empathy for her in the sense that, and this is sort of a bigger idea, um, and I think someone in the chat also asked about sort of the intersection of this vaccination issue and race. And I think there's something very interesting about, you know, when you talk about risk tolerance, what people are willing to give up to see social justice, to see equity, right? She talks a lot about the community and she even talks about, you know, what kind of community do you wanna be part of? Where is this book best used in our home or in a school where many people can have it, right? And I've been thinking over the course of this year, you know, what would I personally be willing to give up? If I knew that COVID could be cured tomorrow, back in May, if someone said to me, if you give up your life, no one will ever die of COVID again. No? What about a leg? What about one eye? What about someone you love? Your child? Like, at what point? Ask me that question about curing racism, right? What would I be willing to personally give up if tomorrow, just like that, this thing could be cured for the community? And I look at her as someone who has decided very clearly what she is and is not willing to, what risk she is and is not willing to tolerate for the sake of a better world. Right. And I admire her clarity in a sense, because I think a lot of people pretend that they are more altruistic than they are or that they would be or that they would do anything. I would do anything to change this. No, I would give anything to change this. Oh, really? Let's go down the checklist. Right. We're, we're all like Suzanne in that sense. You know, we would act one day, one way, but we would claim that's not who I am. Uh, Dr. Omar, I saw you nodding while January was talking about this arc in, um, in well, Karina's integrity, really. What were you thinking? So, so no, I, I think um, uh, Suzanne was a bit of a surprise, uh, you know, in, in a good way, et cetera. But the reason why I was nodding is actually, um, and if I can relate, you know, personal experience. I've, so I've been part of the process both in the U.S. and for the World Health Organization to decide who gets the vaccine first. Wow. And what January was saying is that decision. And, and in a way, you know, if you depersonalize this, it becomes a little bit more of a burden because, you know, if I were to, for example, if you ask me that if there is a, a challenge trial, for example, if you needed, if you could speed up the vaccine development process where some people get vaccinated and then are given a virus, it does reduce the time frame to do that. Um, there is recruitment and I've asked myself that question, maybe I will go for this, uh, but, but then I've said that maybe I would be more eager to go for it when my child is in college. So these kinds of thought experiments uh, come to mind that it is in a way altruism can be selfish as well. Um, uh, but, but so these kinds of things, but, but they take a different meaning in the middle of a pandemic when you are saying that is opening schools more important than saving grandma who has lived uh, her best life so far. And those decisions were made and these are out there. We, what we did was we explicated the reasoning uh, both from the WHO side, but from um, the US side as well, uh, that why we are saying that if you have only 3% vaccine um, based on safety and efficacy, these kinds of things that, that Jonathan, that, 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 that poll that you, uh, you know, that you described so, so nicely, uh, that gets magnified uh, in a pandemic and, and it's not easy. Um, and, and you just hope that you did um, and you make these decisions based on imperfect data. Uh, and one of the reasons is that your public health, main public health agency has been muzzled. They can't release data. So you make these decisions and these recommendations based on imperfect data and you just hope uh, that, that you, what you have uh, done is right, um, um, and, and so on and so forth. So that's why I was nodding. Mm -hmm. uh, Hank, Dr. Omer just talked about um, altruism as something that can be self-serving. And earlier, Jonathan talked about uh, vulnerability, or, or I think January brought it up at first, and Hank was, or rather, Jonathan was thinking it as he wrote Suzanne, that she only became vulnerable when she needed and wanted something. Can you talk to that concept as a playwright, as an attorney, as a mediator? How, how can we be, are we capable of true altruism as human beings? I, I actually, I, I, I'm on the, 
a couple of, it's funny, I was watching this too as a board member of a, of a couple of theater companies. And that really, those negotiations really struck me. And I always say, when we have people on the board and organization, I'm not really helped by volunteers who are doing it out of altruism. I want people who have some self-interest, who believe in the mission. It's at the core of their 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 hearts and soul on this too. So I, I and that's why, again, I thought Karina was such a fascinating character because her self-interest was was her son. And, and so, I, and, and again, um, everything emanated from that. I don't think she would destroy or do anything destructive for the world. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in, in self-interest as the best form of altruism, because if not, then the volunteers are going to disappear when something more crucial comes along. So that's why to me, in our theater company, we try to make sure we pay all the talent at the best possible rate, because we want when we decide is, well, let's not do them a favor, but let's work for them, because they're going to pay me something that's going to help me um, get from today to tomorrow and paying the bills. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, um, Suzanne was very self-aware when it came right down to it, and she asks Karina, why do you send your child to private school? Suzanne understood, I want the best for my child. Of course, it would be best if we shared the resources, if we didn't hoard opportunities, but she was very frank about the fact that whatever is best for my kid, is that's what I'm going for. Tell me about that character and um, how, how you crafted her, where, where she sprang from. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, <laughs> this sort of thing. It's, uh, I, 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 in, in that, uh, in that moment, I mean, I think in some ways that's also quarter what the play is about, that there is just an inherent tension in these kind of places, these sort of, of which there are a number in the Bay Area, these sort of very progressive, you know, private schools that, that have sort of social, uh, you know, social justice mission, but extremely high tuition and limited financial aid. And so there's just like, you know, <laughs> there's like a core contradiction, you know, in, in the thing itself. But I think Suzanne is, is, you know, somewhat clear eyed about that, you know, and, and, um, and, and in that moment is, is just, you know, is trying to sort of use, you know, grasping for whatever tools she has, which is to, to try and take Karina's argument about, about there being a social justice aspect to, immunizations that we're sort of like taking on some risk for ourselves, you know, making some sacrifice, which is the risk to sort of help the community. And that, you know, she's, so she's just trying to sort of turn that around um, on her. But, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think, you know, hopefully the play is structured in a way where you can, you know, you can see it as, you know, Karina's story and it's kind of a sort of more like classical sort of hero's journey structure, or it could be Suzanne's story. And then it's kind of more of a, like a tragedy, you know, that she mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. has this hubris and, and like ends up losing the thing that she cares about the most. And I, I, you know, hopefully it works, it works both ways. Right. Dr. Omer, I'm curious when meeting strangers, let's say you're at a cocktail party or you're on a flight, and someone asks, so what do you do? Do you ever shave the truth thinking, I don't want to get into this conversation or this potential battle? Or do you welcome conversations about vaccinations? No, so uh, surprisingly, people are okay with that. So if, if I'm asked, I don't flaunt it, but if I'm asked, uh, you know, I share that, you know, I work on infectious diseases and, and my area is vaccines. Um, and, but but if someone is seeking out an argument, I don't get into that in that kind of a situation, um, uh, and and so so that kind of a social situation, because I do think because having worked on that, we're actually running experiments on persuasion around that. So that other than as I said, in addition to doing vaccine trials and, and some of the basic not you know some of the epidemiological science work, we do these persuasion experiments as well. Um, if it direct. Um, uh, Arguments uh, and even myth correction can not only um, be ineffective; that it can actually backfire. Uh, so it's like a liberal watching Fox News or a conservative watching MSNBC; uh, their own views get hardened. Um, and so, so that's why even in interpersonal connections, I actually avoid confronting uh, directly. Uh, I we use the approach of sometimes disease salience. So talk about the di- disease, not the vaccine. Uh, if someone has that kind of an approach, 
uh, et cetera. Talk about values. So we did some um, work uh, in, um, uh, you know, around underlying values people have. And we found that vaccine decisions are actually uh, moral decisions and we can measure them. And, and values independent of vaccines. So people who are more libertarian and uh, emphasize purity in respect of the, uh, you know, some people frame it as religious purity, others very secular, my body is a temple, the, the, the crunchy granola, Whole Foods crowd, uh, that kind of stuff. I, you know, I shop at Whole Foods as well, so I'm not, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. that granola comment sounded a little judgmental, as Don would say. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you mean. So, so, so that kind of stuff. So what we are doing is we have run experiments there. They're speaking to, uh, and I believe that's not my place to change anyone's values. Right. The best I can do is to uh, speak to their values. So this liberty uh, framing, we've actually run that. Uh, and, uh, you know, in experiments, etc. cetera. Um, so, so that's the kind of stuff uh, that helps. And that's what I do in interpersonal uh, connections um, as well. Mm -hmm. To not to directly confront, but sort of go from a side um, pathway uh, to address some of this stuff. Right. Okay, let me see if there are any additional questions from our audience before we wrap up. Uh, all right, I like these kind of questions. On a scale of one to five, one, no hope, and five, solid hope. How hopeful are the panelists that as we Americans are, that we as Americans are going to come through our current crisis, a more perfect union? Jonathan, you got us into this mess. <laughs> I'm curious if by current crisis, do we mean, um, specifically COVID, or do we mean the much greater crisis that we are mired in? That question from um, Tom Key, the former artistic director. Hey, Tom, of Theatrical Outfit. So, Tom, if you want to weigh in, if you want to specify exactly what you mean by that question. Um, in the meantime, if Tom is a typist like me. Yes, go ahead, Dr. Omar. I'm saying he, I think he may have meant the, the Sharknado of a year. A shark, <laughs> and tornado, and everything coming. Uh, together. Yeah. Uh, so I think we have more hope um, in terms of coming out of this uh, from the pandemic perspective. It will be hard. Unfortunately, uh, we're going to have. Uh, it's a cliche, but the winter is coming, um, and this is when the virus will naturally transmit more efficiently. So it has behaved uh, as we had predicted that it will uh, not transmit, uh, it will not go away in the summer, and it didn't, uh, but it will have higher transmissibility in the winter because that's how other coronaviruses behave. And we haven't done anything as a country to change that trajectory. It is in our hands to do this, uh, win or lose, uh, you know, whatever the outcome of the election, uh, before January, we will not have, uh, we shouldn't expect any change in course. Um, etc. So that's uh, in the short run, the outlook is bad, but we will get through this uh, with a vaccine. Grandma will able to be able to attend weddings, uh, etc. Not right away, not in June, uh, perhaps. But we will, uh, if things go as we expect, and things are looking good in terms of the tech on the technical side uh, on the vaccine front. Uh, the, the certainty, I would watch this meeting tomorrow that FDA is having an open meeting. Uh, if you are a sort of a, a science nerd, I would I would connect because they, that will be the first time they will be presenting even preliminary data openly from phase three trials, uh, et cetera. And so that will tell us a lot, uh, but I think by the end of next year, we will have a lot of normalcy from the pandemic side. But again, as an immigrant, um, look, I am I have to be optimistic. Um, Etc. I came to this country. It was a bargain of values, not a passport. Um, you know, we had some of us had choices. It was a very deliberate decision uh, to to say that you know I will be a citizen of this country. Um, and so, so this really bothers me uh, that you know the first act uh, uh, Trump did was to um, have to to to, to sideline and to go after people who have my kinds of names and my kinds of heritage. Uh, Etc. And so, uh, so that's the kind of stuff that is more intractable. So the best thing we can do for public health and for democracy is go vote. 
and go vote in large numbers so that it's not only a marginal victory uh, for one party versus another, it's, it's a resounding message. Uh, so I'm more hopeful about the pandemic, the once in a hundred, one, uh, one in a hundred year event, uh, but less uh, optimistic, but still hoping for the best for one uh, every four year event, which is the election. Hank, tough to follow that one, but you're an attorney mediator, so I'm asking you, where are you on the scale of hope to no? I think things will get worse before they get better, but they get better. And, and to me, that's what I love about theater, storytelling. The more we get to know each other, the more stories are being told. And I think this is really a chance for us in this country, in this world, to, to get to know each other. And, and so that's, to me, uh, I'm, I'm leaning toward hope like, like the doctor, but, but ready, gearing up for the winter. January? Oh, well, I'm a five for hope, which sounds, I know, a little bit, um, I don't know, uh, Mary Poppins-ish of me, I guess. But the reality is that the more I read about our history, the more I know that there's nothing unique about this moment. There is nothing new about this moment. And to tell ourselves that there is something unique and new about this moment is to deny the fact that so many people have lived through it with so many fewer resources and so much less connection and so much less knowledge. Um, so I can't, uh, I can't, I can't negate their sacrifices and their experiences by saying there's no way we can get through this. I absolutely know we can. Um, and that's why I'm interested that Tom said hope and not success. So I'm a five for hope for sure. All right, Jonathan, you have the last word. I, I, I'm, I'm going to say like 3.5. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I, I think, you know, I think we're in a, a moment of tremendous churn and and change that will achieve a new equilibrium at some point that sustains for a while um and so the question is just like like at a very basic level like is that new equilibrium one that enhances democracy and like the ability of people to to vote and therefore to like determine the course of the country or is that new equilibrium one that's um you know, much, much further in the other direction that is stuck for a long time. And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm holding on to hope that it's that, that we, I, I don't know how long it will take, but that when we get there, it will be the, the, the first thing. Excellent. Well, I cannot thank you all enough. I wish we could have done this in person, but this is by far the next best thing. Um, I feel hopeful just knowing there are people like you out there in the world. January, you influencing young people. Jonathan, you putting your words out there. Thank you, guiding people through meditation, through mediation and so on. And Dr. Omer, your compassion, your knowledge as a scientist, but your, the complete lack of arrogance, the willing to, to um, explore all, all questions and all possibilities. I think this represents us the best of humanity and i'm so grateful that i got to have you all here tonight thank you so much for saying yes happy thanksgiving thank you, um, thank you. thank you for joining us audience you all stay safe too Good night, everybody. <laughs>